I'm Allison Camerata, and this is CNN Tonight. Nine o'clock on the East Coast, seven o'clock in Wyoming, where as of this moment, the polls are now closed. And Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney awaits her fate. Cheney, of course, has become the face of Republican resistance to Donald Trump and his efforts to deny Joe Biden's presidential victory. Donald Trump also awaits his fate, in a way, as investigations into his actions heat up. We have new developments on the search of his Mar-a-Lago home and those boxes of classified documents. But let's start with tonight's primary. Wyoming is the least populous state, but tonight it's the most popular for election watchers. We will have results coming in throughout this hour, so keep it right here and we will keep you updated. Congresswoman Cheney is the last of the so-called impeachment 10. Those are the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump after the insurrection. Seven of them have either lost their primaries or chosen not to run for re-election. Two of them won, and then there's Cheney. You may remember that Congresswoman Cheney was booted from her leadership post in the Republican conference more than a year ago after trying to warn the country about the threat she believes Donald Trump poses to democracy. Since then, she has continued to try to sound the alarm and call out her colleagues. To my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible, there will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. None of that has endeared her to Republicans in her home state. If Congresswoman Cheney manages to somehow pull off a win tonight against her Trump-backed challenger, Harriet Hageman, she will have defied long odds. But win or lose, CNN has learned that Congresswoman Cheney intends to make a speech tonight saying that her battle has just begun. She started talking about that this morning. Well, look, I think today, uh, no matter what the outcome is, is certainly the beginning uh, of, of a battle that, that is going to continue and is going to go on. We're facing a moment where uh, our democracy really is uh, under attack and under threat. So advisors tell us that Cheney's been working on her speech for several days and is crafting a blunt warning about the danger of misinformation and lies. Her aides say she will outline a plan to, quote, stay in the fight against Donald Trump and intends to wear the outcome of this primary, win or lose, as a, quote, badge of conviction. There's also been a lot of talk about whether Liz Cheney wants to run for president in 2024. We hear she's not expected to give a firm answer, but she's not ruling it out. So let's turn to Chief National Correspondent John King, anchor of Inside Politics. He is standing by at the magic wall waiting for the election results to come in. John, what are you seeing? Allison, you see Wyoming on the map. It is gray. We're waiting for the first votes to come in. But before I zoom in on the state... These are the primaries so far. After tonight, about a handful of states left to hold their primaries. You see, these are House districts. You see all that salmon color on the map? Those are candidates endorsed by Donald Trump. Donald Trump continues to have giant sway in the Republican Party, especially in these conservative House races. So now we're going to pull up to Wyoming's first and only congressional district. It's a statewide one congressperson from the state of Wyoming. It's Cheney versus Harriet Hageman, as you noted, but this is Cheney versus Trump. How can Liz Cheney be in trouble? You just saw the photograph of her standing with her father, the former vice president and the former congressman from Wyoming, the former defense secretary from Wyoming. The Cheney brand used to be gold in Wyoming, right? Liz Cheney came to Washington with Donald Trump in 2016, 40% in her first primary, 68% in her second primary, 73% in the Republican primary just two years ago. So Republicans in Wyoming love, or at least loved, Liz Cheney. What happened? Let's move from this map to this map. She defied Donald Trump. She stood up to him and voted to impeach him. She stood up to him and joined the vi- as vice chair of the January 6th committee. Donald Trump, 70% in Wyoming in 2020. You see only two blue counties. That's Liz Cheney's only hope. 
Are there enough Democrats? Are there enough independents who will switch parties? You have to change your registration to vote as a Republican. Uh, there are indications that there's been a lot of that happening in Wyoming, but is it enough? Allison, look at the map. Look at all this red. Liz Cheney understands the odds are overwhelming, which is why she's writing that defiant speech. She expects when we come back to this map tonight, by the time all the votes are counted, that'll be salmon. Yeah, I'm no mathematician, but that map uh, looked very red. Uh, John, thank you very much. And we'll come back to you, of course, as the results come in. So joining me now is Chris Wallace, host of CNN's Who's Talking to Chris Wallace. Also, our chief political correspondent and State of the Union co-anchor, Dana Bash, and our CNN political commentator, Scott Jennings. Guys, great to have you here as we await the results there. Chris, what are you watching for tonight? Well, uh, frankly, unless there's a political earthquake, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, we don't expect there to be, and that Liz Cheney is going to lose, her statement, her speech, and what she lays out as her path going forward. Clearly, it's going to be a call to arms against Donald Trump. What's her role in that army? Is she... How, how is she, what is she going to say? I don't expect her to say, I'm going to run for president tonight. But how is she going to lay out the way that she is going to oppose Donald Trump and try to prevent him from being, first of all, the Republican nominee, secondly, the next president of the United States over the next two years? Scott, if she loses her seat, what can her role in that army be? Well, it, it makes sense to me that she would run for president. She's raised a ton of money into a federal account, which can be used in another federal account. The president's a federal office. So I, I think she, she has the capacity to mount a campaign for president, although it would be as much of a long shot to get the Republican nomination in 24 as it has been to win this primary in 2022. But if she, you know, it strikes me that <clears throat> this is more than just a vote for her, the impeachment vote. This is a crusade. And if she wants to keep that going, that is the next most obvious thing that you would do. And obviously she would garner all kinds of national media attention and, and political attention. And she seems to think it's, it's, her, it's her life's work, you know, the culmination of her life's work, keep Donald Trump out of the White House. So that, that's what I'm expecting to hear tonight. Something short of a campaign, but something obviously building toward it. And she's already started talking about it in that clip from earlier this evening when she talked about the beginning. This is the beginning. That is the kind of, of tone and tenor that we're hearing from inside her camp. It is what she has been um, sort of pretty much screaming from the rooftops since uh, she made a very clear decision to be uh, the anti-Donald Trump, not just to even be against him, but to call him out before the January 6th committee and then, of course, using her perch uh, on that panel as well. So she clearly has decided that Wyoming is likely behind her right now, and she is looking on a national level to be the most prominent voice she can be to speak out against Trumpism and everything that he represents that she thinks is hurting the party that her family has been such a prominent part of. And, and you know, Allison, not to be too cynical about it, but in, in a town, Washington, where people so much seem to play to what's to their personal advantage, you, you do, you know, the line badge of uh, her conviction, you do have to give her credit for the fact that that Obviously, if you don't like if you like Donald Trump, you're not going to like what she's doing. But she has thrown away a really stellar congressional career. She had the she was the number three Republican in the House of Representatives, the real possibility of eventually becoming the first Republican House Speaker. And she decided Donald Trump was more important than any of that. I mean, she could have just stayed silent like a lot of other people and yep. secretly whispered, yeah. God, I really don't like this, but I'm not going to say anything about it. 
She didn't. She stood up. It's a good point, Chris, because she has it has made her somewhat politically homeless. So all sorts of Democrats, as you all know, really like Liz Cheney right now. But their can't love believe that they're saying that they, they can't <laughs> believe it. But they I mean, there are definitely a contingent that switched party registration to vote for her today. But their love only goes so far. I mean, last night I spoke to one of them, a lifelong Democrat who switched her party registration. And I said, so what would you vote for her for president? And here is the response. Would you vote for her for president? I doubt that very much. (laughs) I don't think that I would. And so there you go. I mean, so so they love her today, but they won't love her tomorrow. I mean, this is the thing about Liz Cheney. She's quite conservative. I mean, her voting record, her... Her entire career, and and when she was in the House uh, while Donald Trump was in office, she she voted with his position ninety something percent of the time. I mean, this is a doctrinaire conservative, so it's not like she's uh, gone off the reservation on issues. She has gone off the reservation on one thing, and that is her attitude and disposition towards Trump and making her crusade getting rid of Trump out of politics. That I actually think she could have survived the impeachment vote if she had just done what others have done, which is you know, just kind of ignore it for the, just put it, put it behind her. But, but that's not, that wasn't her choice. And I think she knew up front what the reckoning would be in Wyoming, but she's obviously got bigger things in mind. Well, we also talked to a Republican last night who isn't going to vote for her because she felt that Liz Cheney had basically left the state behind, that she no longer represented the people of Wyoming and that she wasn't focused on sort of their needs. So here's that moment. While she has been a very conservative vote in the legislature, she just seems to be swinging a little bit more toward the left. But even before that, in the last couple of years, it just does not feel like she really represents the state anymore. I mean, so did she make this too much about Trump? Was there any way to thread that needle and be, be again, you know, speak out for what she thought the ills of Donald Trump were, but to also um, deliver for her home state? Let's be clear. Liz Cheney has not moved to the left. This isn't about left or right. This is about Donald Trump or not. That's what it is. And yeah, it is true. If you think about it through that prism, it is true that she doesn't represent Wyoming, which is a state where Donald Trump won in 2020. He had the biggest margin there than any other state, like by far. West Virginia, I think, was second. And what that tells you is that Wyoming is Trump country. And it's not Cheney country. And so that's why she made the, the decision, the very knowledgeable decision, intentional decision to do what she did, knowing that it could be, to use your term, a suicide mission. Um, Chris, let's look at the scorecard of the impeach, the so-called impeachment 10 and what their fates have been. So of the people, the Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, I mean, basically, the bottom line is that Donald Trump vanquished most of them. Oh, absolutely. Listen, there's an even stronger indication than that. The Washington Post had a fascinating story today where they looked at all of the battleground states and all of the primary races, 54 of 87, 54 of the 87 GOP nominees in battleground states in, in offices, either state, local, or federal, that would have some say in the next election are to some degree or another election deniers. So, so, I mean, that's very much who's going to be on the ballot for Republicans in November in, for governor, for secretary of state, for a lot of these key races that will affect the 2024 election. 
they are election deniers. You know, they are Trump supporters. Scott, as a Republican, what do you think that means for your party and your country? Uh, well, I mean, you know, like I, I, I tend to believe Donald Trump today is the most likely Republican to win the nomination in 24, but the least likely Republican to recapture the White House. And I think prior to this FBI issue, I think some Republicans were starting to prepare themselves to turn the page on it. There's been a maybe a temporary snapback to him, a reflexive defensiveness. But I think if the Republican Party wants to win back the White House and, and beat Joe Biden or whoever runs, um, it, it, it probably should look elsewhere. Donald Trump's never won the popular vote, and, uh, and I don't think his prospects have gotten any better uh, since the last time he tried. Do you think the election deni- denialism only applies to him, or is that now fundamental that Republicans, the two-thirds that Chris is talking about, won't believe outcomes if it doesn't go their way now? I mean, I, I think there are a lot of Republicans who don't believe in the outcomes. Respectfully, there are a bunch of Democrats who don't think Donald Trump won the 2016 election fair and square either. And there were a lot of Democrats who didn't think George W. Bush won fairly in 2000 or 2004. But that's because we they go, didn't we go win through, the popular votes, we, not because they think that there was massive fraud. You, you don't think Democrats still today cling to the idea that somehow Donald Trump had help winning the 2016 election? I, I mean, think it's different. I think it's different than what the election. I, see, I don't. I mean, as, 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 a, as a Republican, but you I don't can't compare that to what we saw in 2020. You can't compare that to 2020. I'm not comparing it, but I think we have been on a 20 year escalator of people increasingly denying outcomes of elections. It got as hot as it's ever been in 20. And I think in 2024, there'll be Republicans who wouldn't accept it if Joe Biden wins again. And there'll be Democrats who wouldn't accept it if Donald Trump or any other Republican. I remember when again. Joe Biden was in the, the January 6th hearing in Congress where they were counting the electoral vote and some Democrats were objecting to Donald Trump and he shut them down. I mean, it just, it's really, I I understand what you're saying, but it's apples and oranges compared to what it went on in 20, I mean, we're talking about a concerted effort to overturn the election in 2020. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, but I don't think you can deny the 20 year escalator that we have been on where partisans have increasingly been willing to disregard the outcome of the election in favor of their own partisan instincts. And it got as bad as it's ever been in 20. My fear is it's going to happen again no matter who wins. The only, the only one of the differences, not the only, one of the differences is what the candidate says. There are always going to be supporters. You've been on campaigns, I'm sure, where they just don't accept the results. It's different when the candidate, especially when it is the president, says no, I'm not going to accept it and has a concerted effort. I, I agree with you. Yeah, and yeah, what, what has Hillary Clinton said, even as early as, as late as this year, about the 2016 election, that it was stolen from me? So, I, look, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm not trying to compare it because it got as bad as it's ever gotten. And January 6th was a travesty. I'm not convinced we're not still on that escalator and we don't know. Oh, it feels like we are on a runaway escalator, certainly in terms of the slate of election deniers. Friends, thank you very much. Please stay close because we will be getting results in by the minute. So there are brand new developments about the classified documents being stored in Donald Trump's basement. What did investigators see on surveillance video that alarmed them so much? We'll be right back. There are multiple criminal investigations currently involving Donald Trump, and some of them are overlapping. But let's start with what the Department of Justice describes as the highly classified documents that were being stored at Mar-a-Lago. 
CNN has learned the FBI interviewed two former White House lawyers, Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, before executing the search warrant on the former president's home. And it turns out that they were among a group of seven aides appointed by President Trump in one of his last actions as president to handle his presidential documents. I'm joined now by former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Elliot williams Guys, Great to have you here, Elliot. If Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin were tasked with being in charge of the presidential records and the classified documents, aren't they in trouble today? You know, they may not be in trouble today because they may have been doing their jobs and attempting to advise their colleagues to not uh, break the law. Right. And so they can provide a tremendous amount of very valuable information as to how documents were stored there, who did what, who saw what. I don't think they're in trouble just yet. Okay, so in terms of who saw what, Maggie Haberman at The Times and our colleague reports that investigators obtained surveillance footage of the hallway outside of the storage room at Mar-a-Lago and saw something that alarmed them. And that's what sped up the process for getting the search warrant. What could they have seen on that tape, Andrew? Well, this gets to the core of what a counterintelligence investigation actually is. And the purpose of a CI investigation is to mitigate a potential threat to national security. It's not to throw someone in jail or to see somebody prosecuted. That can happen, but the primary purpose is to mitigate a threat. In this case, it's very logical that they would want to see that surveillance tape to understand the entire universe of people who might have had access to that room. And if they were concerned by what they saw, that is not a good sign. It means they saw someone potentially accessing that room who should not have been there, maybe even someone who the Trump attorneys that they were dealing with wasn't aware of who was accessing the room. So this is why you don't take top secret documents to someplace like Mar-a-Lago that's not approved for that sort of uh, uh, storage because you, you can put that stuff at risk simply by the people that, uh, that have access to it. Um, Elliot, uh, Maggie Haberman is also reporting that when Donald Trump's advisors repeatedly tried to get him to turn over the documents to this tranche of classified documents to the National Archives, he told them, quote, it's not theirs, it's mine. Actually, it's ours. Yeah. The American people own the presidential documents. I mean, those are historical for posterity records. Look, it's a gross misunderstanding of how records are kept in government. I know this, you knew this as a senior official in government, that you turn over your documents at the end. And as a president of the United States or a senior White House staffer, there are additional rules governing how you ought to hand documents over. They belong to the American people, number one, as, as just sort of a body of documents generally. Then on top of that, some of those are classified documents. And as you know, as I know from having worked with classified materials, they never have any place outside of a secure facility, never belong in a, in a private home, even if you are a former president of the United States. But what do you say to his argument that he had declassified them? Well, he, but, but he didn't and he couldn't um, because so just think about it this way. Each document maybe declassifies future ones down the road. Um, so take, if he declassifies a piece of paper, there's probably 10,000 other pieces of paper around, uh, you know, around the country that are relying on that one for their own classification level. So if there's a document in some other uh, DOJ office somewhere in Fresno, 
is that declassified now too? It just it makes no sense, and he couldn't just issue a blanket order. And think about when he when we know he actually did want things declassified, he asked others to do it. He had John Ratcliffe as DNI declassify documents that he wanted released. He had Richard Grinnell as acting DNI do the same thing. And the reason you have someone do it and go through the procedures because you need other people to start treating that material as declassified. So simply having the thought in your head as president and not communicating it to anyone else doesn't get but, the job you know, done. To be clear, look, he has the power to some extent to declassify things, just like he has the power to pardon and do other things. But we as a government put checks on presidents and people in power so that mistakes and abuses like this don't happen. So Andrew, explain this. So now Patrick Cipollone and Patrick Philbin are involved in this classified documents investigation as well as the DOJ investigation of January 6th. So just explain how complicated that is uh, as an investigator, how you keep different investigations separate when some of the same witnesses and players are involved. It's incredibly complicated. So you have entirely different streams of investigative activity, likely overseen by different line prosecutors and most likely being actually worked on the ground level by different agents and with different supervisors, all convening in on the same witnesses. It's absolutely essential that that stuff is coordinated at the very top. You don't want to keep asking Pat Cipollone or Patrick Philbin to come in on multiple occasions to answer different questions from different groups. You try to package all those things together into longer sessions of interviews in one shot. Okay. They have their work cut out for them. They do. Um, Andrew McCabe, Elliot Williams, thank you so much. Okay. So we've heard from Trump in statements online, but few people can guess what's going on in his mind right now. Better than our next guest, we go one-on-one with Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. Ahead. Okay, this just in, the first results from the Wyoming Republican House primary are in. 5% of the vote is now in. It's a small number. But Hageman starts out with a lead of about 600 votes. So obviously, they will continue to come in minute by minute. We'll keep an eye on it, and we will check in with John King shortly. Okay, but first, Donald Trump has skirted legal trouble many times before. From the Stormy Daniels scandal to his two impeachment trials— Trump has survived virtually unscathed. But now, two grand juries are impaneled, two of his own former lawyers have been ordered to testify in investigations, and his aides are being interviewed under oath by prosecutors. Is this the closest Donald Trump has come to real trouble? Donald Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, went to prison for, as he says, doing Donald Trump's dirty deeds, meaning writing a hush money check to Stormy Daniels, who said she had an affair with Donald Trump. He's now the host of the Mea Culpa podcast, and he also has an upcoming book out, which goes on sale October 11th. It's called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the Department of Justice Against His Critics. Michael, great to have you here in studio. Good to see you, Allison. So what about that premise? Is this the closest that Donald Trump has come to being in real legal trouble? It's certainly the closest I've ever seen him come. Um, As you know, Donald Trump has been like the Teflon Don. It appears now things have changed. You know, one of the things that Donald has been so cautious about his entire life. He took the um, suggestions of Roy Cohn. Never have your fingerprints on anything, which is why he's never had an email address. He never texted. um, Very little in writing. But everything that's going on now, especially when you're with government, everything is documented. And so including like the conversation with Brad Raffensperger, including the conversation he had with me about making a payment, and that one was for Karen McDougal, um, which was not made by me. It was made by AMI and David Pecker, National Enquirer. Yeah. But 
we're at a situation now where the documentary evidence and the recordings and all of the information really appear to be closing in on him. Let's talk about the classified documents that were apparently being stored in the basement in a storage room at Mar-a-Lago. You've been to Mar-a-Lago many times? Yes. Were you aware that there was a safe or a storage room or a surveillance camera? There? Well, I knew there were cameras because, um, you know, that's something that, you know, Matt Calamari at the Trump Organization does. They put cameras everywhere in all the buildings and uh, all of the Trump Why properties. Why do they do that? Uh, security. And it's the right thing to do for you know, for members of a club like that. But I never knew about the basement. I never knew that he had a safe, which is, you know, very interesting that whoever the informant was knew exactly where to go, knew exactly the information that was there, both in the safe and in the storage area. And what does that tell you? Well, to me, I believe, and I've said, it's my personal opinion, I believe it's Jared Kushner. I believe that only family would know the existence of a safe let alone the contents of that safe. And so, you know, who else could it possibly be? He doesn't trust Don Jr. He's made it crystal clear. I write about it in the book that Don is the worst judgment of anyone he's ever met. Eric, I could understand, may possibly know, but Ivanka and Jared as a team, especially since Jared was what? The secretary of everything? So, so basically you're suggesting, but we don't have any evidence of this, that it's somebody in his close circle and it's somebody in his family. And what would Donald Trump's mindset be tonight, knowing that there are people who know this information that are cooperating with the FBI. Yeah, this is a real problem for him. You see, Donald Trump is like First Avenue when it comes to loyalty. It's one way, right? And he's the most disloyal human being that you'll ever meet. But he expects 100% loyalty from everyone around him. Now that his inner circle is in his mind, who is it that is providing information to the FBI? Who is it that's creating this headache for him? This is driving him crazy because he can't figure it out. But he knows it has to be someone in that inner circle. And he really doesn't have anybody outside of that circle to trust. Why do you think he had 20 boxes of classified top secret? I mean, these things were designated as top secret or even higher sensitive compartmented info. What was he going to do with that info? Well, first of all, shouldn't everybody be keeping it in the basement of Mar-a-Lago, right? I mean... You're asking the exact question that I was hoping everybody would ask, why? And I'll tell you, my belief is that he was going to use it as a bargaining chip, as a get-out-of-jail-free card. What does that mean? Well, the second that they would put him in handcuffs, he would turn around and say, you don't seem to understand. I have the documentation showing, for example, where our nuclear launch pads are or where other information, sensitive national security information. This is what I believe. And he would use it and say, If you proceed with this, I'm telling you right now, there's 20 of my loyal supporters. You don't know who they are, but we will release that information to Russia, to Iran, to whoever it might be, because he doesn't care about this country. I've been saying that forever. The whole presidential election was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics, which he just happened to win. But knowing him as you do, in other words, you don't think these were just mementos. He wasn't just keeping Kim Jong-un's love letter as a a memento. I'm sure some of it was Kim Jong-un love letters or a letter he may have received from Vladimir Putin about his Miss Universe pageant, something that he could show off if he ever felt he needed to have that document. But I believe that the sensitive information that's there was used or was going to be used by him as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Just to recap, the FBI searched your office, as you well remember, as well as the home and our office of Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, 
Rudy Giuliani, Jeffrey Clark. You and I have talked about this before. Why do so many people around Donald Trump get into trouble, into legal trouble, but he doesn't? Yeah, because, he, again, he doesn't put his fingerprints on anything, and the rest of us are just stupid. Our, our job is, well, mine was, to protect him at all costs, whatever it is that he needed to do. And he didn't come out and make overt statements like, Michael, this is what I need you to do. He would speak in code. This can't happen. And so you go out and you run into the fire for him to protect him, yet he's the one that started the fire. And he doesn't care if you get burned or not. Michael, it's always insightful to talk to you. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good to see you, Allison. Okay, so the first numbers are coming in as Congresswoman Liz Cheney awaits her fate in Wyoming. John King is at the Magic Wall, and we are live at Cheney headquarters. So keep it right here. Okay, we're watching the first numbers come in from Wyoming as Liz Cheney faces the real possibility of losing her congressional seat. Harriet Hageman, the Trump-backed challenger, is off to an early lead. So let's check back in with John King at the Magic Wall. John, what are you seeing? The first results are what we expected to watch. Still a lot of counting to do, but Harriet Hageman, the Trump-backed candidate, uh, pulls out to an early lead. That's a pretty comfortable lead, but again, only about 6% of the estimated vote. So we have a long way to count. But if you are Harriet Hageman, what did you want to see? You wanted to see your color come in as the first results come in. Only results from two counties so far. Uh, Number one, Natrona County here. uh, And you see it's 5345, 5445, if you round that up, uh, that's, you know, that's a big lead. But this one here, you get into the more rural areas, look at that, uh, 77 to 15%. These two counties, Allison, uh, make up about 22, 23% of the statewide population. No giant cities, if you will, in Wyoming. Long way to go. We still need Teton County where Jackson is. We need to come down here where Cheyenne is, a 6%. But if you're Liz Cheney, if you were going to surprise people, you wanted to see it from the beginning, a lot of counting to do. But this map so far filling in as everyone expected. Back with you. Let's check in now with CNN's Jeff Zeleny. He's live at Cheney headquarters in Jackson, Wyoming. So what's the mood? Allison, good evening. I don't know if you can hear the music behind me here, but there's some uh, country western music playing. And I'll say the mood is actually quite celebratory. Uh, but there is a bit of uh, an anticlimactic feel about the outcome of the primary. As John was just talking about, the numbers coming in now uh, at the moment are not favoring Liz Cheney. But talking to people here and Cheney supporters throughout the day, They're focused on what is coming next. And that's what I'm told her speech is going to be about tonight. Turning the page, looking ahead, uh, they certainly are not uh, acknowledging defeat or conceding defeat by any stretch. But the speech this evening here outside Jackson is going to be about continuing the battle against Donald Trump. So the margin of the victory uh, for Harriet Hageman, if she has one, is going to be something that Cheney folks are watching. But, uh, you know, the bigger question is, what is she going to do next if she falls short tonight? So I'm not sure I can recall an election night uh, party where a candidate is is losing, but there is such a a celebratory mood because there really is a sense of what is next for Liz Cheney if she does not uh, win tonight. So this certainly is an arc of the Cheney family. I'm told all of the Cheneys will be here tonight. Former President Dick Cheney, Lynn Cheney, her mother, her sister as well. So uh, it's a very Wyoming uh, picturesque evening as you can see here. And uh, the Cheney supporters are waiting for the final outcome and her speech. That Allison. doesn't even look real, Jeff. It looks like your your backdrop is so majestic. It looks painted. But tell us what's the crowd like right now? I mean, I how can- many people are there? Is it packed? What's What's the scene? 
Uh, look, there are a lot of people here, uh, dozens and dozens, maybe a couple hundred people or so, listening to music, having uh, uh, some light bites, having a few drinks on this really beautiful summer evening. And again, there is a sense of some longtime Cheney friends uh, have driven from across the state and certainly from this area where the Cheney uh, family has lived for quite some time. So people have driven from a Casper, where the Cheneys grew up, both Lynn and Dick Cheney. So there definitely is a sense of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't sense a dispirited sense in the crowd at all, a sense of possibility for what she may do next if she uh, falls shorter. So basically, it's an evening picnic kind of a festivity here. But the, uh, the outcome, even if she doesn't seem to win, again, wondering what, uh, what her speech will say and what she'll do, perhaps run for 2024 or not. I'm told she will not make a specific declaration of that, but uh, certainly a festive mood about uh, what her future might be, Allison. Okay, really interesting. Jeff Zeleny, thank you very much. Thanks to John King as well. Stand by. We're keeping a close watch on Wyoming and what happens there tonight could add to a trend, and that is election deniers winning primaries around the nation. What does that mean for our democracy and the risk of more chaos like what we saw on January 6th? All that's next. We could soon learn if Congresswoman Liz Cheney will survive her primary challenge from Harriet Hageman if Hageman wins. That is yet another primary victory for a 2020 election denier. And she would join a wave of election deniers who are now just one election away from gaining power over election results in battleground states. As Chris Wallace noted earlier, a Washington Post analysis finds that nearly two-thirds of the current nominees for everything from governor to secretary of state have questioned the results of the race Joe Biden won. Anybody who was involved in that corrupt, shady, shoddy election of 2020. Lock them up. I believe it was stolen, yeah. The election was rigged. We know it, and they know it. Donald Trump won. You know, half of the nation believes that that this election was stolen from President Trump, and, and and I agree with that. Okay. Let's bring in our guests right now to talk about this. We have Dana Bash again. We have John Avlon joining us and Scott Jennings. So, Scott, uh, I know that we talked about this (laughs) earlier in the hour, but I had to bring you back because you didn't answer my critical question, which is Mm. what happens when a full slate of election deniers win? I know that you said that you've seen it on both sides and that we've been on this escalator for a long time. But what happens when they're in charge of the levers of election results? Yeah, it's actually quite worrisome uh, because we saw, and there's been some reporting on some of the efforts that occurred between Election Day and Inauguration Day, you know, trying to copy the voting machines in Georgia and some different states. I mean, obviously, there are people who want to uh, relitigate this or worse, uh, you know, once they take these offices. It's a dead end. I mean, it's a dead end for the Republican Party to make this the core animating issue of the party. And, uh, It's worrisome that we could conduct a free and fair election. You could have outcomes and people would just simply deny those outcomes or disregard those outcomes. I mean, it's just not the way it works, not the way it's supposed to work. And it is a dead end for the Republican Party, in my opinion, not just this year, but as we go to 2024. Yeah, but it's not just theoretical. It's happening. I mean, Mm -hmm. Dana, let me just show you the slate. This is just Arizona. Let's just look at Arizona for one example. The entire slate of people who would be in charge of elections. So here are the election deniers who've won their primaries already, okay? So from the governor, Carrie Lake, Blake Masters, U.S. Senate, uh, Mark Fitchum, who we'll get to in a minute, and then also for the attorney general. So every single 
person who would be overseeing it. And, you know, this time, next time around, Donald Trump. I mean, in other words, they'll find fraud next time around because they'll fabricate it. And there's something else. And that is states like Arizona have changed their election laws since the 2020 election to make it effectively, in a lot of ways, easier to overturn the election. So it's giving the people who are, you just put up on the screen, who are election deniers more leeway to do what Doug Ducey didn't do, for example, the current governor of Arizona, because he said he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm because the law didn't allow him to, and on down. Same in, in Georgia. Georgia, we know, is a place where the former president and people who were around him tried to overturn the election. He said it. He said it on tape, looking for 11,000-plus votes. It didn't happen because the law didn't allow it to happen and because people stood in the way, like uh, Governor Kemp and others. The law has changed and gives the legislature more power to overturn and, over, and, and step on the Secretary of State. But, but in Georgia, the center held. Rafsenberger was reelected. Kemp was That's reelected true. against very that pressure. True. What's happened in Arizona is something very different. I mean, this is a Republican Party that views former favorite son John McCain as an apostate. Right. And that's a sign of a real problem. That's a sign of a real sickness. You know, the really telling thing about that two thirds stat is that it's in battleground states. That's not the total number, right? Those are the people, those are the people that these battleground state GOPs, where you need, you, you need to win over the reasonable edge of the opposition, you need to win over the purple state, are playing to the base in such a way that it has huge implications, not only for 22, but for the integrity of elections. And what Carrie Lake and co. are saying is an election is a fraud unless I win. That's right. That's not democracy. John, I'm very interested to hear you say this, because as you know, you have often told me it's not as dire as I think it is. But you've come around. No, I, I'm still a determined optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. But Because it's called that, evidence, John. It's evidence. <laughs> They're winning now. But back when you and I used to have this theoretical discussion, you were like, but don't worry. You know, they haven't won the primary yet. They have now. They have. They're getting that one, one mean, election away. But that doesn't mean they win the general election. And, you know, we, we were talking to Scott. You know, Mitch McConnell and the Senate Democrats should remember in, in 2010, when, you know, Sharon Angles and the Todd Akins and, and the Christine O'Donnells, you know, when, when the Republican Party puts forward extremists in swing states, it usually doesn't end well. Now, we'll see what the overall turnout map in, in, in this in off your you know, midterm election is. But but that's that's the that's the problem. Now, if they do win, then that's bad for not only the Republican Party, but democracy to have election deniers in place. But it's probably bad news for the Republican Party in the short run. Yeah, these um, these purple states that are extraordinarily close, um, you know, we, we do have some candidate challenges. I, I, I actually think all these states are going to be quite close, whether the candidacies are, you know, high quality or low quality. I think we're in for close elections in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. I mean, a lot of these states, mm -hmm. which actually makes me quite concerned about what the period between November and January is going to look like. Yes. Because if we have extremely close races across the country, I think it's pretty predictable uh, what's going to happen. We're going to be fighting over vote counts for, for many, many weeks. And so um, we got to hope, look, all anybody wants is for the people who cast votes fairly to have those votes counted fairly. I mean, that, that's what anybody should want. And that yep, sounds pretty simple, but that it, it won't be that simple, I guess, in the end. Um, Dana, let's just look at, let's just zero in on Mark Fitchum. He's in um, Arizona. He's a self-proclaimed member of the far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's filled with anti-government conspiracy theories. Um, our investigative team, the K-File, uncovered a Pinterest account uh, in which he has collected a treason watch list, as, it is, uh, as he calls it on there, filled with government officials and Nazi imagery. And so what if he wins? It's scary. I mean, it just is not because of 
uh, his ideology on, uh, uh, and so excuse me, not his philosophy on policy, on taxes, on government spending, on basics. It's that stuff. That's mm-hmm. that is scary, scary stuff. That is the kind of of thing that would have gotten him ostracized, um, pushed pushed out of any. Um, normal conversation, normal political discourse, never mind elected office, like this, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And there he is. You don't hire an arsonist to run the fire department. Yeah. And it's all part and parcel of what we've been talking about tonight, which is Liz Cheney's race. I mean, it's seen, mm-hmm. sometimes I think we focus it on Liz Cheney and her political future, but this is all connected because her opponent is an election denier. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, I mean, this is happening for and, and that's a feature, tonight. not a bug within the Republican base. Again, the, the problem is, we're going to see what happens with Liz Cheney here. But it's not for nothing that, the, the you know, two of the, the 10 House members who voted to impeach Donald Trump who survived were in top two primaries, right? Where you had a more representative election, right? Because, you know, you get an independence vote and Democrats and all that. It, it's these close partisan primaries, these low turnouts. That's when folks can hijack elections and you get these unrepresentative results. You know, if Liz Cheney had, you know, would she win a general election? I don't know. But I think she'd have a better shot than winning winning a close partisan primary that's going to be lower turnout. Okay, friends, thank you very much. We will have an update, a quick update on the vote in Wyoming. Eight percent of the vote is in now. And Harriet uh, Hageman is leading with 60 percent of that vote. Thanks for watching tonight, everyone. Join me tomorrow in the CNN newsroom with Victor Blackwell from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. And I'll be back here tomorrow night. And with that... Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.